welcome to the Revenue Architect podcast. My guest this week is Scott Stauffer, co-founder and CEO of Scale Matters. And the reason I think that you're going to enjoy listening to Scott is that he's focused squarely on a problem that all of us as CROs and marketing leaders are concerned about this year, which is finding efficiency in our go-to-market. So I think it's going to be a great chat. And uh, Scott, I'm really happy to have you. Welcome to the pod. Barney, thanks for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Scott, maybe you could kick off and, and tell us a little bit about Scale Matters and the problem you're solving. Sure. Um, I'll start by giving you the, the history of what caused us to create Scale Matters. So at our uh, prior company that was a uh, producer of CRM and marketing automation platforms that were purpose-built for nonprofits, you know, one of the benefits of serving nonprofits is there's a feel-good aspect, but they don't tend to be awesome customers to build a business model around because very often they are high touch, low pay, they churn a lot. So it, it forced us to get, you know, super vigilant about driving the efficiency of acquiring these customers, right? If you think about traditional SaaS metrics and probably one of the most key ones, LTV to CAC, we knew the LTV portion of it was going to be a little suspect. So we had to put a lot of energy into how do we get the CAC down as far as possible. And having an engineering background, we, we basically set off to deconstruct the entire process of acquiring customers, look at it in very granular detail, model that process. We completely tore apart our tech stack and rebuilt it so that it could measure at the same level of granularity that we had built these models. And then we started producing a lot of interesting data. And of course, you know, I spent like first hour of every morning, you know, exporting stuff out of Salesforce into Excel and manipulating data around. And long story short, we were able to uh, leverage this data to really identify kind of where we had friction, right? Where, where we had things that were just not being very productive in our overall process. Uh, and by being able to see those with the level of precision we could, we were able to take actions to basically eliminate it. We were able to reduce our uh, customer acquisition costs by almost 75% in about one year's time frame and shrink our sales cycle by almost 45%. So when we sold that company, uh, there was a handful of us from there that decided that we could actually productize that whole approach. And that was the genesis of Scale Matters. So Scale Matters is effectively a data-driven optimization platform that is specifically built to surface all of these various inefficiencies within our customers' go-to-market engine. That's great, Scott. I, I think it's fascinating and it's always a good sign when you build a product, so you build a company out of a problem that you had to solve. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had firsthand knowledge that there was actually a, a need for it, right? <laughs> yeah, and this seems to be another great thing about what you're doing is this is a evergreen problem. This is not like something that's just, you know, a fad. Like acquiring customers more efficiently is sort of like gets to the very core of any business. It doesn't even matter if it's SaaS or not. It's such an important problem. And so I'm curious, Scott, what kind of trends are you seeing in customer acquisition and how are they affecting your customers and marketers in general? Well, interestingly enough, you suggested that efficient customer acquisition 
position as an evergreen problem and not a fad. But in fact, it, it wasn't all that prioritized not too long ago. The importance of it seems to be directly related to the you know mind space that the investment community is in. Mm-hmm. So you go two years ago where investors are throwing just ridiculous amounts of money at companies. Uh, all they're really worried about is getting land grabs and driving growth. So they don't necessarily think about efficient growth as being important. What's fascinating, though, and this this is to your point, they are going to get more market share and grow faster if they are efficient. But they don't. It wasn't necessarily top of mind. And you ask about top trends. I would say the most significant thing we've seen, and it's almost like a step function uh, at the end of last year, is how much there's been this sea change in mind shift thinking around uh, efficient growth now is what trumps everything, and so. You know, what does that mean to um, sales leaders? Well, sales leaders are being asked to drive more revenue per salesperson, right? You can't just keep hiring more people and that's the way you meet the number. Uh, and so, we, you know, we're having dialogue all the time with people. We just had a conversation with a CFO the other day, and he's saying we're under pressure to increase our ARR as a ratio of OTE from four to six X to six to eight X. Efficiency is the top trend that has come into play. The sales leaders, as I said, very focused around driving up that ARR to OTE number. Uh, I think on the marketing side, one of the things we've seen is when people are in a mode of trying to contain cost, they are more likely to look at non-people related costs first. So the, the very easiest thing that goes is software purchases, right? So which is why so many companies in SaaS right now are, are struggling a bit because uh, budgets for new tools, et cetera, have just basically shut down. Shortly after tools, CFOs look at marketing programs, right? Because because unfortunately, it's one of these areas where a ton of money is consumed. There uh, has never been a um, perfect way to attribute return to that money, uh, even, even though there's obviously some return, but it's, it's hard to calculate it with any precision. And so uh, I I think marketers uh, are under pressure to work with smaller budgets than they probably were because, as I said, it's just an easy place for CFOs to force cuts is on marketing programs because marketing people can't, with any legitimate data, typically go, well, if we do that, this is how it's going to impact our revenue stream. So so that, that's really kind of the biggest impact of this trend is forcing marketers and sales leaders to have to do more with less. Yes, Scott, it's really interesting something you just said there was uh, marketing programs like Google, LinkedIn, sort of the bulk of the spend, especially in in B2B, and that there's never been a perfect way to attribute return to those programs. Why do you think that is? I think a couple of reasons. One is that people haven't necessarily um, set up their uh, tech stacks to be able to measure stuff from web session all the right way down to deal. Uh, we see, we see, particularly in early and growth stage companies, right? If you think about it, um, the CRM was probably initially put in by the first salesperson. The, mm-hmm. the marketing automation platform was initially put in by the first marketer. 
And, you know, those people are, their expertise is selling and marketing. It's not managing technology. So rarely, rarely do we go into companies in growth stage and see the tech stack put together very well. And as a result, there's all these um, breakdowns in the data. So, so I, I think one of the issues is they just haven't set up the stuff to measure it properly. There's also a big disconnect between spend. Who keeps track of spend? It's the finance or accounting department. But there isn't necessarily a lot of technology out there that grabs the, the uh, spend data out of the chart of accounts in you know NetSuite or QuickBooks and then ties that into conversion rate data through the CRM, et cetera. And it's not that it can't be done. It's, it's just that most people don't think about it that way. And, and you know, instead, we, we see marketing folks getting um, caught up in some of this holy grail of multi-touch attribution and trying to score and credit for influence, et cetera. And, and, and they use all these attribution models that are completely arbitrary to begin with. And instead, if, if companies just sort of focus more at the channel level, paid search, versus events, versus outbound SDR prospecting. If they focused at the channel level, instead of trying to put value uh, against every single touch that happens, I think they could actually make a lot of progress that way. I mean, it's one of the things we do with our customers is we give them very good understanding of, um, you know, relative productivity of these different channels that they're investing in. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Before I was uh, kind of in this role, I spent many years in ad tech, you know, it's on the sell side for like selling to marketers and they all wanted to have a multi-touch model, but nobody could really pull it off. The best that anyone could do really was a first touch and a last touch and then feeling good about first touch investment. But obviously last touch is is a thing that you're never going to cut. And you look at the businesses that make all the money in advertising, it's the ones that are strongest at last touch, even still today. It's really interesting that for all the talk and all the promise MarTech tool vendors around attribution, it really does come back to the basics. Like you said, just like looking at it by by channel and you know focus on the, the value of each channel and optimizing each channel. Like it's such a basic thing to do that gets kind of skipped over and as people try to get more sophisticated. Yeah, they, I mean, people over-engineer all this stuff and yeah. end up with nothing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and lead scoring. Like, I, Honestly, I have a draft post in, in my blog going, saying, is lead scoring bullshit? <laughs> because like, I feel like it's just so arbitrary. It's, it's like 10 points for a page view, 30 points for a webinar, 30 points for a download, 70 points for an MQL, job done. And it's really interesting like how lead scoring is something that is designed and graded by the same person you know normally if you take a test somebody else writes the test and then you have to kind of take it but like how many companies have you seen where finance is uh coming up with the lead scoring methodology and marketing's tasked with hitting it i haven't seen any <laughs> no no uh, none at all and and uh, i mean i'm completely aligned with you in terms of questioning the value of lead scoring um I mean, again, I've seen so many people over engineer it. And in many cases, I mean, one of the challenges with a lot of companies is, you know, they, they unfortunately incent marketers on MQL counts. And so, you know, they sit there and manipulate the scoring so that it produces more MQLs. And, and one thing we've seen, I mean, vividly is that leads that don't start at some with some level of implied intent. So so if you think about it, 
somebody comes in and downloads a, a white paper or signs up to your blog, there's no intent, right? You, you cannot imply or infer any intent, purchase intent there. Somebody, on the other hand, comes in and submits a demo request or a pricing request. You can start to infer intent. What what we see with the people with the lead scoring is, you know, as soon as somebody does one of these high intent actions like demo requests, contact sales, et cetera, you know, it automatically becomes MQL in, in, in most people's vernacular. But the those low intent leads, the, the leads that were created on low intent actions like signing up to a newsletter, the fact that they may come back and listen to three webinars or something, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, it means they're interested in the topics you're suggesting, but there, there's absolutely zero indication of intent from all those things. And yet so many marketers will basically keep increasing the value of the score for people doing that stuff and eventually say, okay, that's now an MQL. And, you know, we've absolutely seen that those leads, which get to MQL status from scoring, never convert to business at the same rate as leads that actually started from some action of intent. And it's like a 20 to one difference, right? You're so right. You know, like I've actually been interviewing uh, VP marketing candidates. And one of the questions I ask is, what does the handoff from marketing to sales look like in your past? And a lot of them will give you very like detailed overview of kind of what you just said, like, yeah, we get people in top of funnel, we score them, they become MQL. And I ask them, well, what's the conversion from MQL to SQL? And they're like, oh, like 10%. <laughs> I'm like, well, what the hell's happening between, you know, to 90% of leads that you're giving to sales? So you're giving, you know, 100 leads to, to humans who get paid a lot of money and 90, 90 of them are crap. Like, how is that acceptable in your company? And they're like, oh, it's just normal. You know, there's a BDR team. They do it. Like people don't even think that there's something. No, they think there. that's okay. And, and the problem is the sales team then stops doing anything with them. Yeah. Right. So, 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 so the good leads also get trashed. Right. I mean, that's what happens if you, if you pollute the stuff that you're putting into the sales team with a bunch of garbage, the sales team will just stop taking any any action on these things. And they'll right. also miss acting on the ones that actually, you know, had legitimate intent or maybe ICP prospects. It's, so it's true. just, uh, I don't know, it's a crazy dynamic and it seems so obvious, but yet it's just still happens. It's pervasive. It's very pervasive. I mean, I interviewed 10 people and, you know, nine of them said, you know, 10, 10 to 20% of, of the MQLs converted to ops. And they thought that was okay. I think it's also because they, they had a BDR team that was basically following up with these leads. And I was thinking that that's such an inefficient way of farming for intent, you know, putting somebody that's making 80 grand a year to like basically figure out if the leads got any value. Like this could be done so much more, uh, you know, it's just, just so in such more, more of an automated way. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I feel like, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier how the sea change in, um, you know, this, this sort of shift efficient. towards efficiency. Absolutely. And I wonder how much of that is going to impact the BDR role. If you've got BDRs that are just kind of talking to unqualified leads, like that's got to be one of the first things that a CFO is going to say cut because it's a big expense and, you know, very relatively low return. 
I've seen very, very few cases, and you can tell that I've been around for a while. I've <laughs> seen very, very few cases where uh, what were initially low quality leads that eventually get, you know, MQL'd up through some scoring algorithm and they get handed to BDRs to try to do something with ever turn into anything. Thinking about that a little bit more, like there's an awful lot of money spent on non-productive stuff by everyone. <laughs> and so the cost of participating in these channels has really gone up. The channels you could even say are saturated because it, on the other side, the number of channels available to marketers has kind of reduced over time as essentially consumer behavior is consolidated on platforms like Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, Amazon. What are some of the things that marketers should be thinking of? I would say messaging. You know, what's fascinating to me is how, how many companies out there, even though they've got product market fit, have not necessarily dialed in their messaging. And uh, let, let me tell you how that manifests itself. Companies spending money on, I don't know, G2 listings or software advice listings and paid search ads. And the people that they're bringing in are non-ICP prospects, right? That they are not really good fit. So you've wasted all this money bringing in these people. And then you waste sales money or, or SDR money actually trying to sell to people that aren't a good fit. And the core of the issue is the messaging. We do a ton of work with customer uh, our customers that have Gong. We actually put these sophisticated trackers into Gong that uh, produces information around prospect priorities, prospect challenges, et cetera. And, and we're able to surface this very um, vivid data that helps our customers understand sort of what messaging is resonating, what messaging isn't, you know, how do ICP prospects talk versus non-ICP prospects talk. And it's just, um, it's crazy how clear it becomes when the messaging isn't really dialed in. And yet, if you th look at so many um, tech marketing organizations today, particularly the, the parts that have sort of demand gen as their function, they really aren't thinking about messaging as much. They're looking at all these MarTech tools, looking at data. They're doing correlation, but they're actually not putting their energy into listening to the uh, recorded calls or trying to extract data out of recorded calls. They're trying to do it by, you know, extracting data out of behavior on the website or something else like that. And so to me, one of the you know most substantial opportunities of all this conversation intelligence uh, trend, gong, chorus, et cetera, that has happened in the last three or four years is the opportunity for marketers to actually extract really good information from real sales calls and dial in their messaging better. And that's how you get beyond the pollution in these saturated channels in my, in my mind. That's right. I mean, how many websites you look at and you go, okay. I still don't know what they do, right? I mean, just attention to detail on messaging, I think, is a huge opportunity for companies to uh, separate themselves from the pack. I always think about you know, when I used to sell ads, there's two ways to make your ad perform better. One was bid more and the other one was higher click-through rate. And the higher click-through rate was always about messaging. And ultimately, if you can improve your click-through rate, you save money because you're not paying more per click. And yeah, it's it's really interesting, I think, in B2B, how companies start off by talking about what they do and, you know, like who we are, what we do, me, 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 me. 
And then they kind of get into this, uh, let's talk about our product and the features and benefits. And they think that's being really customer centric. But as you see these these uh, businesses evolve, I'm sure if you look at the difference between the $3 million and the $300 million business that you mentioned, the $300 million one is talking about customers' problems, what the customer cares about. And they're probably doing it in language that somewhat resonates with the customer. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've seen work really well is when you have your CS team interview your current customers and just ask them really simple questions like, how has your day to day improved since you switched to using scale matters? And just listen to what they say and then ask a follow up question. So they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm spending a lot less time on this (laughs) on this thing. And you're like, oh, curious, like, what were you doing before? Yeah, And you start to get to like how the customer describes a problem and then super importantly, how the customer describes a solution. I've made this mistake many times myself where I think I can describe my product really eloquently. I used to be a product manager and mm-hmm. an engineer. And so I think I'm really smart. Plus I've got a British accent. So extra points. <laughs> but like the, the customer doesn't describe it. The customer describes it in some really strange way and i'm i used to get offended by that like, no 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 you're wrong and then i finally grew up and realized like i should listen to how that my customer describes my product and i should describe my product the same way and i think what you're saying is taking that all the way into all of your marketing all your marketing programs as well and i think that that requires a lot of coordination between you know cs and marketing i also think there's a lot that can be gained from leveraging some of these conversation intelligence tools out there. And and, and the, re- the reason I, I try to encourage marketers to do that is if you think about how do they test messaging otherwise? Well, they'll A-B test, right? They'll run a couple different ads, see which one works better. And, and yes, you will figure out which message of the two is better. But that doesn't mean there isn't something completely different that would be 10x better. Scott, could you give us an example here? Because a lot of people listening to this use Gong or Chorus or something like that. And um, they're recording every call, probably not listening to them because there's so many of them. But you picked, you mentioned something really interesting, which is determining, you know, listening to how uh, someone in your ICP speaks versus how someone outside your ICP speaks. Uh, sure. So so what we would, what we would do with, with Gong is, we ha- we have a team that actually builds trackers and trackers in Gong or Chorus are kind of the equivalent in Google ads to keyword phrases, right? And so let's say um, some prospect, a normal priority of, a, of your prospects might be um, security. And so you'd figure out, you, you figure out, you listen to enough calls that you figure out what are, what are the 60 different ways people are saying it, it Security is important to me, right? Do they say, uh, well, we're, we're going to need to see SOC 2 compliance or GDPR compliance, or are they just going to say, well, we'll want to understand your security posture, right? They have all these different ways. So you figure out those ways. You create a security tracker. Um, maybe there's another tracker called uh, ease of use, right? And so it's what are all the different ways people talk about ease of use? So you create these trackers. Then every time uh, people mention these things, these these priorities, these trackers are are, uh, incremented. So you start to get statistical counts of what's important and how the relative things that are important to these people rank. And, And then you have the ability to understand, okay, 
what is our win rate when these things show up, right? So, so you start to understand when this particular priority shows up, we don't do very well. So we understand now that people that think that's important may not be in our ICP because our product's not good at it or whatever the reason is, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it's all it's all that type of data, right? You're basically uh, first configuring those tools like Gong or Chorus, et cetera, so that they can actually track with a, with a you know a pretty good level of precision the uh, priorities that prospects talk about their challenges they talk about their goals right and and and, uh, and by the way to make that re- really work well it, it actually helps to structure sales calls so that it draws that out because it's it's largely stuff that you would expose during the discovery part of a sales process so uh, uh the customers or companies we've seen do this very well have gotten pretty structured with the discovery part of a sales call and therefore it elicits the type of information you're trying to get that you can statistically calculate uh and and then again understanding okay ultimately do we win or do we lose when this stuff comes up um and and to me that's just probably the most uh, precise way to dial in an understanding of your ICP or non-ICP and also the most precise way to dial in your messaging that, you know, and we've never had anything like that before. This is really fascinating because you know, I think what I described was listening to the people who already buy your product. But I think what you're describing is a step function above that, which is listening to the people who don't buy your product. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of that picture that sometimes floats around the internet of the, the a war plane that came back with bullet holes in the wings and how initially the thought was like, let's patch up those bullet holes to make the plane stronger. And then someone had the insight to say, no, let's patch up where there's no bullet holes because those planes never came back. We never, we never saw the damage. Right. And I think it's, it's very like, I know that, that picture's flowed around the internet a lot. So maybe people will be thinking about it, but what, cause what you're describing here is exactly that it's listening to why you lose um, as much as, you know, why you win. So I think it's very common to do a closed loss analysis and say, Oh, we lost because the timing wasn't right. Or we lost, you know, we try and categorize it, try and have the rep categorize it, but um, that's not an exact science. And well, and, and you know, I don't know about your experience, Arnie, but my experience, 90% of the time you lose, you don't know why, because they just sort of go radio silent on you. Definitely. That one, to be honest, like um, we got to the bottom of that in, in my company and some others that I've worked with. Uh, the number one reason was single threaded communication, because if we were talking to more than one person, we would know why we lost. But when you're right. talking to one person, for sure. But I think, you know, the reality is a lot of the time you don't get the chance to talk to more than one person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have some plays to try and understand at least what other people involved will think about. So like if you, I'm t- selling to you and you mention uh, your co-founder, Dan, is going to weigh in on it. I would ask you, oh, curious, you know, what, is, what does Dan think about this and, and what are Dan's priorities? And I would try and understand, um, you know, everyone's priorities, even if I don't get to talk to them. But I think what you're doing here is taking it even a step further and just saying, look, this person coming in has a mindset. It's going to be a good indicator of whether we can, whether we can close them or not. Scott, you know, one of the 
problems I, I see a lot, I, I saw a lot rather in the kind of boom years, if you like, was companies thinking everyone's in their TAM, you know, going on this massive land grab. In this new kind of efficient era that we're in, how should marketers be thinking about their TAM? You know, the, the investor paradigm forces people to want to have a bigger TAM than they likely do, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, if you think about, well, we got to raise money, investors like to think this is going to be a huge market someday. So people start to actually, because of the need to raise money, believe themselves that they actually have a big TAM. Uh, and, and that's part of the reason why they aren't necessarily as um, precise uh, as they could be when they're actually going out to get customers. Um, so I, I guess I'd say first thing is to disconnect what you articulate as TAM to the investor community from what you want to consider your TAM when it comes to actually acquiring customers. The second thing is go as narrow as you possibly can and get that right. One of the problems with lack of narrowness or lack of focus around ideal customer profile is your learnings will be murky. Whereas if you can be very precise, you can actually rely on the patterns of what you're learning to actually change your behavior. Yeah, like I was nodding furiously <laughs> like while you were you were saying that uh, you know disconnect what you articulate to investors from what you do in your customer acquisition and, and go as narrow as possible. Your target market's always smaller than you think it is. Even if you think it's really small, it's smaller. Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> and I think uh, it's always a challenge with marketing teams to keep them focused because the nature of the marketing function is there's so many things that you could possibly do. There's so many, it's a very creative role. And uh, I think it's always a challenge to keep your marketing team focused. And then also, you know, have a marketing leader that keeps the team focused on being very systematic. Let's talk about scale matters a little bit here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think people have probably picked up from our conversation, how you are really focused on helping companies become more efficient throughout the whole go-to-market. What If I was going to buy scale matters, like, how would you onboard me? Because it kind of sounds really complicated. Like, but like I really buy into your value prop. What does onboarding look like? Sure. So great question. Is it really complicated? I don't know. It, it's not super simple um, because, you know, we're trying to actually produce good data and producing good data is not the easiest thing in the world to do. Mm. With that said, our company, while it's our software platform that people are largely buying, we have a, a substantial services element. So we get very, very engaged uh, with the RevOps teams at our customers. Um, we will work with the RevOps team to make sure the tech stack is configured in a way that can measure against those models at the exact same level of precision. Now, we don't rely entirely on our customers' fields, et cetera, in their CRM. We actually put, uh, and we work in Salesforce environments, by the way, only Salesforce environments as the CRM. But we we layer a managed package into Salesforce, and you can think of that as a bunch of instrumentation. So since so many of these companies, early and growth stage companies, we can't rely on their data uh, to produce the type of um, insights that we are selling them. 
So we basically instrument their environment ourselves, so that we produce our own data to to do that. It, you know, it it ends up being um, an eight week process. You know, maybe there's 15 staff hours required on the part of the customer during those eight weeks, and that's really um, interviews, right? We're we're interviewing them, saying, okay, let us understand what are all the different channels you're using, right? What's your motion look like? Um, when, when you get a lead, does that go directly to, to a salesperson? Does it go to an SDR? You know, so, so we, we're going to want to understand their exact motion and processes today. Uh, very often we get into recommending changes to it based on all that we've seen as best practices. But then we, once we understand all this stuff, then we build the instrumentation to be able to measure that stuff pretty precisely. It, it produces pretty powerful results. I, I would say we're helping our customers reduce their cost of acquisition by 20%. Um, we've had a couple of outliers that are as high as 70%. So, you know, the, the, um, the friction is there. Uh, in everybody's go-to-market motions, and, sure. and we've just become extraordinarily good at surfacing it. That's actually surprisingly short um, onboarding. I thought it would be a lot longer. That sounds to me like that's that's pretty actionable and quite exciting, I think, for people listening to this podcast who are looking to get more efficient with customer acquisition, which hopefully is everyone. Scott, thank you so much for talking to me today and sharing your insights, introducing us to Scale Matters. Thanks again. Arnie, thanks for having me. Really do appreciate it.